The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Greetings, listeners. Today is May 25th, 2023, and this is Douglas Paul, previous chairman and member of the Public Affairs Committee of the North American Spine Society. I'd like to welcome everyone to the next installment of our podcast and Zoom series, showcasing interesting articles from the current Spineline membership magazine. Today, we'll be discussing the article by Drs. Manish Kazlawal and Mohit Patel, titled Preoperative Optimization in Spine Surgery, a Review, in the March-April issue of this year. You will have the pleasure of hearing directly from Dr. Kazlawal. Our hope and goal is that this discussion will further expound on their brilliant article in our current membership magazine, First of all, I'd like to thank both authors for their work and time. Now, let's get started. Dr. Kazlawal, again, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. Before we get into the article, can you tell our viewers and listeners a little bit about yourself before we move into the discussion? Hey, thanks, Dr. Paul, uh, for doing uh, this podcast today. So, uh, I am Anish Kazlawal. Uh, I am an attending neurosurgeon uh, at University Hospitals, uh, Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. I am a trained as a neurosurgeon. I trained back in New Delhi and then did a residency back in Chicago and did a fellowship with Chris Shaffrey and uh, Rick Fessler and Vince Trinell is uh, trained in both liberal invasive and spinal deformity surgery. And uh, my whole practice is uh, spine surgery and uh, my my core uh, uh, expertise is in really trying to reduce complications in spine surgery, and this is where this article seems to be extremely important uh, for majority of spine surgeons. I agree. I agree. Um, I love decreasing the risk of complications. Uh, I think it's one of the mainstays of our discussions with patients and anything we can do to help minimize the risk is a wonderful benefit to our patients and uh, the quality and delivery of healthcare in, in, uh, in the world. Um, uh, thank you for that introduction. Um, now, as we transition to the discussion of your article, preoperative optimization in spine surgery, a review, I'd like to start off with a relatively simple question. Do you consider back pain an epidemic? Um, I I totally do. And uh, in fact, I will take it uh, one notch further and say it's more like a pandemic uh, because I don't think it's restricted to any one country anymore. Uh, of course, in high income, low income, and middle income countries uh, and affects patients uh, in all age groups from children to elderly population. Uh, the number of people who live with the disability secondary to back pain has increased by about 54% from 1990 to 2015. And a lot of that increase is seen in low-income and middle-income countries. So I don't think it would be wrong to say at this point that we are dealing more with a pandemic kind of situation than an epidemic of back pain. I, I agree wholeheartedly. I noticed that in my patient population, it does, it, 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 it affects all practices of life. Um, and I often reference that four out of five Americans will have back pain in their lifetime from multiple previous articles. And I've been referencing that since I began in medicine in 1991. Do you believe the incidence or prevalence of back pain has changed over the past 50 years? 
Yeah, uh, that's so funny that that's the number that pretty much everybody uses that uh, when they see patients and, and talk to various folks about uh, the incidence and prevalence of back pain. Um, and I would say that if anything, this number is higher. And uh, unfortunately, that would literally mean that everybody everybody would experience back pain in his or her lifetime at least once. And uh, that is uh, true for the most part. And I would say, actually, I'm seeing more and more young patients uh, in their late 20s, 30s, and 40s with back pain, especially now over the past couple of years. Uh, not sure, but uh, uh, part of that could be secondary to what has been more commonly termed as a pandemic posture. That is uh, not described as a poor posture, from slouching or being at a desk or couch at home, that has happened, uh, especially after the pandemic. And not surprisingly, I have been seeing a lot more younger patients with uh, neck and back pain. So all in all, I would say that the, the incidence is definitely getting further uptake uh, from four out of five to maybe even more. I, I see it increasing in my patient population as well. Um, now, moving on directly to your article, you noted that back surgery volume has significantly increased uh, over the past decade or two. Do you believe one of the reasons for this is the fact that we are living longer as a as a as as a human? Uh, again, uh, absolutely true. So there has been an exponential increase in spine surgery is being performed. Uh, part of it is due to improvement of safety of surgery per se and changing demographics where increasing number of elderly people uh, are being added to the population who wants to maintain an active lifestyle. Um, in fact, uh, one of the paper by Broadcare all noted a 138% increase in elective lumbar fusion surgeries between 2004 and 2015. Now, better anesthetic techniques and availability of MIS techniques have made a number of patients eligible for surgery that in the past would have been considered inoperable. And overall, I would say that it's improvement in techniques, favorable outcomes, and an increase in the number of hospitals and surgeons too, that could account for some of the increase in surgeries. Uh, I think a lot of people have accessibility to surgeons uh, close to where they live that may not have been true in the past. Uh, and that could easily explain all the increasing number of surgeries that have been performed. Uh, um, having said that, you know, there is, of course, some significant bias from patient and provider preference, and that can explain to some extent some geographic variation in the overall increase in back surgery volume, uh, which may not be the same across the board, but it's definitely more than uh, what it used to be and is on the rise. And given the fact that patients are living even longer and longer, I think uh, we as spine surgeons may be performing more surgeries, especially in older people. 80s is extremely common this day. It is in my practice as well. I, I even have a, a couple of 90-year-olds that have done very well from surgery. Um, it, it, it and it's increasing. Um, before we jump into all the different points in the articles, I, I'd like to get your 
your overall take on the educational point you and your co-author, Dr. Patel, wanted to ensure that the readers learn from your research? Um, um, definitely. So the thing about spine surgery is that it leads to excellent outcome, but only when the right surgeon performs the right operation in the right patient and with the right pathology. So a lot of rights needs to happen for spine surgery to be successful. And uh, I cannot emphasize the importance of good outcomes. Part of the reason being maturity of the surgeons that are lateral. Uh, I think the room for complications are very minimal and uh, um, cannot be taken for granted. And um, what I have noticed more and more in my practice, it's difficult to find the right patient. We can find the right pathology, right surgeon, right operation. The challenge is finding the right patient, and uh, that's uh, that's where we all struggle. And optimizing surgery before optimizing patients before spine surgery should remain a priority to improve surgical outcome and limit postoperative complications. And uh, given the fact that spine surgery is associated with a significant upfront cost. It is the durability of the surgery with maintenance of good outcome with minimal complications, especially revision surgeries, that eventually makes this surgery cost-effective, at least on a societal level in today's age where the overall healthcare cost is skyrocketing. And hence, optimization of various modifiable risk factors is equally paramount as the technical skills required in the OR to improve the outcome following any elective spine surgery. And uh, uh, there is already a shift in you know, a lot of payment model, which may switch from fee-for-service to bundle payments and value-driven uh, payment. And as healthcare evolves in that fashion, I cannot overemphasize the importance of uh, being uh, uh, careful about uh, uh, selecting the right patient for surety. And I think this is where some of the points we discussed in this in this article are valuable. Those are great points, and we're going to jump right into them now. Uh, you did identify, along with Dr. Patel, seven cornerstones for this optimization at success. Uh, and the first one you discussed is in the article is nutrition. However, before I get into the nutrition uh, subject, is there one of them that you believe is more important than any other one of them? So uh, I think like we discussed like a few parameters here, but I, I guess there are more than what we could have put in this paper. And uh, while all of them are important, uh, I think what uh, uh, strikes me most is osteoporosis and frailty that I actually see so often in my practice and make the surgical decision-making extremely challenging. And uh, having said that, uh, most of the factors are linked and presence of one leads to increased chances of having the other. And uh, uh, I think all of them uh, needs to be uh, looked in in totality. Um, but those two I mentioned are extremely common. I actually um, agree with you. I know that you put the frailty last, and we'll get that. We'll get into that at the end of the uh, discussion. Uh, but it was interesting to me that you mentioned that one, and you put it last. But I think it was almost a summation issue. But again, we'll get into that one 
uh, near the end of the discussion. Um, let's let's move into the optimization and the nutrition aspect that you brought up as the number one point. Can you enlighten our viewers and listeners? What age do you recommend testing for serum albumin and prealbumin? So uh, nutritional deficiency is, uh, you know, generally what we would define it as like preoperative serum albumin of less than 3.5 gram per deciliter and prealbumin of less than 20 milligrams per deciliter. And we'll classify as malnourishment. And uh, hypoalbuminia is a marker of inflammation and frailty. So I tend to recommend the testing for this in patients who are frail, regardless of their age. And anybody who appears smaller age and older than 60. And uh, fortunately, you know, no al low albumin and prealbumin, along with some low lymphocyte count, have clearly been shown to be associated with increased risk of surgical site infection, post complications, and uh, even mortality following surgery. Uh, having said that, uh, there is positive studies that evaluate whether modifying or optimizing nutritional status results in improved clinical outcome. Even though there is some data, uh, at least one RCTI I came across where improving the nutrition via including protein uh, and carbohydrate powder packs before lumbar spine surgery led to decreased length of stay and lower incidence of complications as compared to those who did not. So uh, overall, when evidence of malnutrition is detected, patients would benefit from some sort of dietary consultation and uh, meal fortification with protein. While the other area where nutrition becomes important and the data is pretty robust is patients with diabetes. So diabetic individuals who undergo spine surgery should have a preoperative HbA when testing done before surgery almost always, and there may be some controversy regarding the cutoff level, but uh, eight or below or 7.5 is generally the number I am looking for, at least in my practice, where I would not offer surgery unless it's emergency to patients with uh, elevated HbA1c, and I think there's absolutely no controversy about that uh, no in my opinion. I agree. I use um, 7.0 for my elective practice um, unless there's uh, some other outstanding issue. But uh, I do like to maximize that improvement in their diabetic status with that hemoglobin A1C. I agree. Absolutely. Uh, the, uh, the second concern you have in the article is body mass index. I know that uh, we've discussed the diabetes and there's an association there. But what can you tell our viewers and listeners regarding obese patients when they state, Doc, I cannot lose the weight because it hurts me to exercise. What is your answer for that type of patient? Uh, well, I'll tell you that is definitely challenging. And, uh, and uh, I hear that all the time, too. Um, and I'll tell them that uh, you may or may not be able to lose the weight, but I am interested in your interest in at least attempting it. You know, I, I tell them that you may not be successful. It's, it's not easy, and I get the point. If you're not moving, of course, you're going to add on more weight. But uh, there are certain patients who will outrightly 
don't want to do it, and I'm a little bit concerned with that. I'm okay with a patient who may not lose weight, but at least is willing to try because I want to see the effort. Uh, having said that, when they tell me that, I will clearly let them know that obesity is linked to extremely high complications following lumbar spine surgery. And while the data may be controversial in, say, class one or class two obesity, where I think there's conflicting evidence, but once you hit a BMI of more than 40, uh, the complication rate really goes pretty high. So there's data that shows that class one, class two obesity, you know, maybe the complications are not terribly bad, especially when you do MIS surgeries and for good pathologies where the symptoms clearly could be attributed to spinal issues. But once you hit class three, I think even if you are doing it for the right indication, I think the complications uh, may just not be low enough to to justify those surgeries. And, and there is data that even in patients with a BMI of barely more than 30, the overall satisfaction and patient reported outcomes are much lower at 12 and 30, 24 month follow-up uh, as compared to patients who are not. So I would say 30 is pushing it a bit because I would say most of the patients I see are definitely more than 30. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, that's why when you, when you, even though we think that BMI is uh, tough, uh, the, recommendations are divided and uh, there is no conclusive recommendation that say that it is clearly associated with poor outcome across the board. So even though uh, I think we all know that uh, there's increased infection rate and whatnot, but some patients may get by, especially class one, class two, it's the uh, more than 40 BMI that concerns me the most. And I would try my best to be very blunt with them about risk of complications and oftentimes they would understand and then try their best to lose weight. I agree with that. I, I have a, a near, uh, a near showstopper of 45, but I have significant and multiple counseling sessions with patients when they're between 40 and 45. And typically I almost allow themselves to talk themselves out of the surgery um, but do put them on a weight loss program and have them see um, their regular physician or if they need some sort of bariatric assistance. Um, right. I think, uh, I mean, you know, there is some progress on the medical side of uh, things. And, you know, some newer drugs have been approved, especially in patients who are diabetic and who are obese. There's a new FDA-approved drug that has shown to be remarkably effective uh, Called Manjaro, I guess you know. I think it might be helpful for for us to refer this patient to appropriate physicians uh, who who can help them with this thing. Great discussion there. Uh, what is your usual discussion with patients regarding their cardiac risk profile, and how do you manage this in your practice when someone is considering spine surgery? Um, again, uh, considering the fact that we are treating aging populations, uh, extremely common for them to have some sort of significant cardiac history. And, you know, generally for this patient, uh, I let them, I make sure that they see the cardiologist uh, and are optimized to the best uh, uh, for them. And uh, my role in those patients actually is to really counsel them uh, about the risk of perioperative complications. Uh, 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 there's a, a larger study 
looking at like more than 30,000 patients uh, who looked at risk factor for development of cardiac complications. And uh, they found that patients with a significant history of cardiac disorders were, were the one who are at risk of perioperative cardiac events, mainly due to increased volume shift and blood loss. Uh, and uh, that becomes extremely important in adult spinal deformity surgery. I think for a lot of routine degen, I don't think the risks are extremely high, but once you die down into major reconstructions, I think that's where you can have perioperative MI and, and can complicate the hospital course because then, you know, they may need to go on anticoagulants and whatnot. So it, it does become a little bit uh, challenging. And uh, I think uh, understanding their cardiac history and setting uh, them to see cardiologists can help you elucidate the the risk they would have. And I think more of it is to counsel. And oftentimes, if, if the risk is significant, I may even like back out of a major deformity surgery. I, I haven't had a patient who had any major cardiac events uh, for majority of the degen spine. And if you look at the data, even for higher cardiac risk is considered more than 5%. Well, that's not super high, 5% for the most part in the absence of any significant uh, intraoperative events uh, generally doesn't lead to major issues. But I think a lot of it is just counseling and talking about the fact that they can have a cardiac event perioperatively. I, I don't think you can modify a lot of that if they're already optimized, but uh, they are at some higher risk. That's the uh, population of my patients that Occasionally, I'll have a discussion with their cardiologist, and sometimes we'll stage their procedure in my practice so that I can limit some of the procedure. I know the, the vast majority of the issues are essentially the intubation and extubation portions of the case, but there's also an issue with length of, of the case in, in my practice. And if I can perform a staged MIS procedure um, and the cardiologist is is okay with that, especially allowing them to go back on an anticoagulant a little sooner than otherwise normal if it's MIS, and maybe you haven't decompressed the canal. Sometimes that's a favorable um, option for the cardiologist and the patient. Uh, and, and I've had some what you would call wins with doing that without necessarily performing a frank decompression, either MIS or open. Um, but it's one of those issues that I, I make sure I have a discussion with the cardiologist. Correct. And uh, I, since there are so many patients with cardiac issues, I tend not to stop aspirin in, in any of these patients anymore. So when I started, I used to be really leery of like continuing aspirin. Uh, at this point, I generally do not stop aspirin just because of this perioperative cardiac risk, uh, except when I'm doing intramedullary tumor or any intradural surgeries. Wow. That's a... Uh... That's yeah. an interesting uh, point. Right. Yeah, and I, I looked at I looked at data, and uh, I I wasn't uh, very clear on that, but uh, the data kind of doesn't uh, strongly favor that they need to be stopped. When I started, I used to cancel surgery if somebody was taking that aspirin, but don't do that anymore. And uh, fortunately, I mean, I haven't noticed any significant issues. I. I was the same way. I would cancel surgery if they'd been on aspirin. Exactly. But I have um, gone to the point where I've moved 
that stoppage of the aspirin closer and closer to the surgical date. I, yeah. I haven't gotten to that point yet where I've just said it doesn't matter. But with that information, I, I'll, I'll look at my data even yeah. more. I mean, there, there are a lot of folks who would absolutely do not surgery. But as I said, the, the cardiac problems are so common that, I mean, a lot of time patients forget to stop aspirin and whatnot. And uh, a lot of time it started that way. And then I looked at data deeply and couldn't find a convincing. I, now I'm sure if you look at data, you'll find some studies that will show some complications. But but I couldn't find anything across the board that totally favored one way or the other. So I think it's still the description of uh, particular positions. But I've been a little bit liberal from that point of view. That is a great a great point to bring up. Thanks. Um, now, the next subject was bone quality as a risk for spine surgery or lack thereof. I know um, all spine surgeons are very concerned about bone quality in our instrumented cases, especially in the lumbar spine. I believe our viewers would like to know if you've become more aggressive in your evaluation of patients for inadequate bone quality. Do you have a showstopper number or a limit on a bone density scan in which you would say, I'm not going to perform an instrument effusion in this patient in the neck or the back? So, as I mentioned previously, osteoporosis is really the seal of spine surgery. I mean, I'm stuck with so many patients who I strongly think should undergo surgery, but the bone density just uh, makes it extremely difficult. So, anyway, I almost routinely look for osteoporosis. And uh, anybody who I do deformity surgery will definitely get bone density for sure. Uh, and uh, the good thing is that there's increasing data now that shows that use of a CT scan as an opportunistic way to look for bone density is, is a pretty good way of assessing the same. So I kind of like look at the CAT scan and any HU value less than 110 is concerning for me. So I would actually trust the CT scan more than the bone density sometimes uh, because eventually uh, I think I've seen some cases where the bone density wasn't the best, but the CAT scan shows pretty good HE values, and you, I could get away with the uh, instrumentation in those cases. For the most part, they do correlate pretty well. Now, we've got to be careful because the bone density in the spine itself can sometimes artifactually come elevated because of the degeneration and sclerosis in some of the bones. They may still be osteoporotic. So I got to use... I kind of use both uh, DEXA and CAT scan. And for deformity, if they are more than two point, lower than 2.5 minus, I would not do a T10 to pelvis or any major reconstruction. Now for, for DGEN, I think uh, I sometimes may, like one level or so, I, I will get away with that. Uh, but for DGEN, I, I, I do have a short stop or as you ask, and that would be, Anything like less than minus 2.5, I would not offer a major reconstruction for DGEN. And if their CT scan doesn't look that bad, like I will have a DGEN patient where the bone density would be low, but their CAT scan actually would show sclerosis in the area I'm going to be instrumenting. And I've noticed that uh, I haven't seen any major concerning instrumentation failure uh, in those cases, but I will tell no to a lot of patients, even in that patient population, uh, for surgery, unless uh, I truly 
find that the pathology is bad enough that they are, they are so much limited otherwise. Um, uh, and and uh, whenever I find osteoporosis, I would optimize them. I would send them to endocrinologist. Uh, again, when you start practicing, it is hard, but as you're, as you're in, as you're working for a while, you know people who can get your patient in faster and whatnot. And I've been doing uh, anabolic agents for about two to three months before the surgery and continue for like about six to eight months after the surgery. And that has been extremely helpful. I like few cases where it changed the bone density impressively and really made surgeries that I thought I would not do uh, pretty successful. And if I have no time to do that, like somebody is coming with a bad fracture and osteoporosis and neurological issues, or I just don't have time to optimize, I will do the surgery. We'll kind of try to do something different. Like often I will, I, use, I will cement every now and then. I don't do that often, but I will sometimes, oftentimes I will, in cervical spine, I will do an anterior posterior surgery if they're osteoporotic and myelopathic, but I can't wait for optimization. Um, and uh, sometimes I just add like a couple of extra levels if they're osteoporotic. But, but the best option is wait if you have time. Otherwise, uh, if it's nothing really major, I think you can try these two or three different things that can probably prevent uh, major issues. But, but absolutely a problem that we all face and converts a lot of patients who are otherwise good surgical candidates to non-surgical. That's a fantastic answer. You you included uh, some additional questions I was going to ask about the augmentation or extending it. Um, well, uh, that's good to know your parameters. Uh, I know our our listeners and viewers would love to know those are loving to know those as well. Um, next, uh, you you itemized uh, smoking as a concern uh, since since your practice started and since you did the research for this particular article, have you stopped performing surgery in smokers or have you adjusted your parameters in any way since, since your research? So I, I actually do not perform lumbar fusions in patients who are active smokers. So I would not offer them surgery. Um, and it's not just for pseudoarthrosis per se. I think there is higher incidence of pulmonary cardiovascular complications and I think wound infection. I mean, the infection rate uh, in patients who smoke is is pretty high. And in some studies, uh, for posterior spine surgery, almost ten times higher chances of readmissions within ninety days in patients who smoke. So it's uh, it's tough. And so as I said, in lumbar spine, I would not offer them surgery. I would just not, unless they have coraquina or like say losing function, say for drop or like genuinely weak, I would uh, highly counsel them to stop smoking. And I've been successful in quite a significant number of patients. And I'll tell you, once they quit smoking, they're already better by the time they have surgery. They will still have the surgery, but they're already feeling better for some reason. I, I think it does. It also tells me that again, a desire to get better after surgery and and uh, the intent from the patient side. Like, uh, you know, I did a formerly surgery this past Monday and the patient was successfully able to quit smoking, was, was already very happy. 
and excited to get the surgery. So for lumbar spine, I would not operate unless neurological issues. Similarly, for cervical spine, if they're not myelopathic and if they don't have weakness, I will still wait for myelopathy. Again, I'm stuck with what I have and uh, I'll still counsel them about especially the risk of infection. And there's some data that suggests that they would not even improve as good as patients who don't smoke. So I will emphasize the importance of smoking cessation, but I would may still proceed with surgery if there is obvious significant small cord compression. At least I try my best to help them uh, come off smoking. For my elective practice, I've gone to um, asking patients to stop smoking, even to the point that I recommend coat nine tests um, to evaluate for their nicotine stopping point. Um, yeah. And I've found that um, patients do better, like you've noticed as well. I think they feel better yeah. about it. And I think it's the right thing to do. And I think promoting the smoking cessation in them also gives you insight into their thought process on if they really want to get better. And as you know, when it comes to lumbar spine surgery, we're always operating on the spine, but we're also operating on the patient's psyche. Um, and that has a significant portion of the outcomes to me. And if you don't address that with a smoking cessation discussion, then you're not addressing the whole purpose or the whole person. Uh, your next absolutely. Point. And absolutely. Uh, the next point you had in the article was psychosocial factors. I, I really, um, really was interested in this point um, because I, I, like I just uh, stated, it, it is a significant portion of our, of our, of our patients. Um, uh, well, their, their desire to improve. Um, and in re in reality, do they have a desire to improve or are they just seeing you because they have back pain? Uh, I believe you made a point about it in the narcotic use discussion in this section. In my practice, I found that uh, I do quite a bit of revision surgery, uh, which typically includes patients on numerous narcotics for years and almost decades. I've been amazed that many times uh, I'm the first person to mention narcotic-induced hyperalgesia. Uh, it's a very discouraging issue that I have um, that I'm the first person to mention this. I believe personally more research should be performed on the subject with our uh, patient population. Uh, can you tell us more thoughts about or your, uh, your thoughts about this uh, subject? So, yeah, I mean, uh, there, is, there is data that shows that patients who underwent uh, lumbar spine surgery uh, have, if they have untreated mental illness such as depression, it basically was the second biggest predictor for patients who ended up being on long-term use of opioids following the surgery. And uh, patients who are on opioids before the surgery for a longer period of time, they are another population who would stay on opioids for a longer period even after the surgery. And uh, the problem with chronic opioid use is that they have higher rate of continued post-operative pain and increased complications, uh, negatively affecting overall post-operative results. Now, longer-term opioid use before really leads to higher complication, increased length of stay, and higher cost and utilization of resources. And uh, the literature is pretty consistent at this point uh, in showing the association between preoperative opioid use and duration. 
with chronic post-operative use of opioids and outcome. And again, it's like lower return to work, uh, worse outcome on patients who use preoperative opioids, especially for a prolonged period of time. And there is limited data now to support the efficacy of opioid wean, at least to the lowest possible dose before surgery. Uh, again, but however, regardless as far as the guidelines or recommendation are concerned, at this point, there is insufficient evidence to support that preoperative risk factor for perioperative complications. I don't think the actual say revisions and whatnot are higher of stay and uh, and uh, the need for them to be prolong on prolonged opioids is definitely high. So patients are on opioids, a frank discussion needs to be held with them. So either you want to prescribe them afterwards or you have I'm going to ask you back. Yes, yes. Sorry about that. I don't know That's what right. happened. That's okay. Uh, so, so yeah, a frank discussion needs to be held uh, regarding the fact that they're likely going to require long-term opioids, and you need to have a plan before that. Otherwise, I, it can be extremely challenging. I, I agree with all the things you just said, um, and uh, it's, it's very enlightening. Hopefully, uh, our readers and listeners and viewers uh, will will uh, in, incorporate that in their practice and more research done on the subject. Uh, the last point, which is one of the most interesting points to me, was the frailty section. Uh, my personal belief on this is that this needs to be defined better and considered more often. I don't have a personal great test to evaluate this. It's just one of those things that I would consider an eye test to determine if a patient is is frail. I know that it's one of those things that they typically come in with a family member that's younger. And when you start mentioning the word surgery, you get a very disconcerted look from the um, from the family member because they also believe that there's a frailty component that's not really defined, but you can just look at it and say, there's a frailty component here. And I believe after reading the article and, and really engaging in it, that the whole point of all of the items that you bring up come down to a frailty issue, or maybe there's a word that's not really well-defined that incorporates this about a patient that's the best candidate to operate on and the patient that's not the best candidate to operate on. Um, but can you expand on on what you, what you were really trying to get across with this frailty discussion? So again, as I mentioned before, osteoporosis and frailty are, are the biggest challenges right now. So frailty has attracted significant attention more recently, and it's not an unexpected as uh, increased frailty is associated with very high perioperative complications, prolonged length of stay, and poor patient-reported outcome in various studies. Now, there are various measures that are available, and the more granular you get, it provides a more accurate prediction of complications. But at the same time, they're hard to use on a day-to-day -day basis in a busy surgeon's practice. So it's tricky. And I'll tell you, yes, most of the surgeons can look at the patient and tell you are frail. I don't think you're going to do better with surgery. But uh, having said that, there are various objective skills that you can actually use 
to to quantify that and and what I use generally is a very simple MFI five index um, or an MFI eleven uh, because they're fairly straightforward to use and have shown to correlate pretty well with like more complex frailty scales, which are hard to incorporate. So I will use one of those. Uh, and uh, uh, But uh, uh, for objectively quantifying those, but a lot of time I can look at the patient, I, I can see them, then they can barely even move like a few steps and uh, the, uh, how much add to they are in day-to-day life. I don't think anybody needs some extremely complicated scale to tell that uh, you're not going to do better with an extremely complex operation. And, uh, you know, if you follow the literature on frailty, there is a new index that gets reported every few months, and, and it just, it's complicated to, to incorporate that in, in practice. Like there's a new uh, study that published that looked at risk analysis index, uh, which is a 14-item uh, instrument, which I thought, it's kind of pretty easy to use too, and that is shown to be better than a lot of other measures that have been reported. But as I said, in the end of the day, most of the measures will give you at least some idea till the time you know about it, you're looking for it. I think one would be okay using any of those scales out there, provided uh, it's not time consuming. And uh, I'll tell you, given the aging population, I see that frailty would continue to be a challenging problem as we move along. And oftentimes it may just mean saying no to surgical interventions uh, if they are severely frail, or maybe consider some minimal invasive approaches as a potential option to decrease perioperative complications in, in frail patients. Uh, and uh, as there is data that shows that patient frailty influences outcome with increased revision and decreased probability of discharge to location other than home, but there is some data says that if you do those surgeries MIS, like say one level TLIP MIS versus open, somehow frailty doesn't affect the outcomes as badly with MIS approaches for at least one or two level cases as compared to open. And now, while there is lack of evidence to make a recommendation on rehabilitation as an essential intervention to all patients undergoing spine surgery, I think rehabilitation as an intervention that combined exercise, nutrition therapy, and psychological preparation may be useful in elderly and frail patients to enhance their functional capacity and uh, earlier uh, recovery following surgery. And, and I often tell a lot of the patients that, look, therapy is not going to fix your problem, but I think working a little bit with therapy, even if you have failed it before, will, I think, prep them better for surgeries. And I think this prehabilitation is, is gaining more traction, especially with a lot of these ERAS protocols. And uh, if you if you if you look at the drivers for frailty, is the lack of exercise, malnutrition, and and the chronic diseases uh, development. These are the drivers of frailty. And hence, any intro any consideration for prevention of frailty would include uh, performing regular exercises to prevent chronic loss and increasing physiological reserves prior to anticipated uh, surgery or elective hospitalization, which is what a prehabilitation is, could help mitigate some of the effects of frailty. But 
I don't think you can completely reverse it. You just have to come up with some plans to either change the surgical approach. But sometimes I think maybe the right answer is to say no. I think I think a frail patient would not tolerate a major adult spinal deformity surgery, uh, uh, and the problem uh, the problem would continue to to haunt after the surgery and may lead to poor outcomes. And it's extremely common in patients with cancer. Metastatic spinal epidural cord compression, I think, um, you know, we just looked at our own data with frailty. Frailty correlates so much higher with complication rates, more than a lot of other factors that we thought were more important than frailty. Very interesting topic. I, I think that over the next few years, we'll see a lot more. We'll read a lot more about the frailty index or indices. Um, and I look forward to reviewing that. Um, well, uh, Dr. Kazlowal, thank you for spending time out of your busy practice tonight um, to visit with our viewers and readers. Can you end um, this uh, discussion on a comment or two regarding any changes that you've had in your practice since you finished researching and writing this article? I as, I as I said, the reason I wrote this article is because a lot of these things I actually tried to put into practice, and that was the reason we, we thought that it's a simple message that I think a lot of societies and you know surgeons are are thinking about a lot, but I think it doesn't hurt to drum it a little bit more because I strongly think. The, the success of spine surgery is, is avoided so complicated. We, we got very good in terms of our technical skills and availability of a lot of agent for surgery. But I think uh, what we need to get a clear handle on is, is appropriate patient selection and, and avoid complications because those, those two are, are the, the biggest uh, factors that lead to all this failed back surgery syndrome, which which can be avoided if, if, if we just are careful and pay attention to some of the simple stuff. And so now I agree, some of it is it's not modifiable, but I guess uh, we just need to say no to some of these patients. Yeah. Um, I know you cut off a little bit at when we were discussing the psychosocial factors and the narcotic use. And I wanted to make sure that our listeners and viewers um, caught your last point. I think it was the last two sentences sentences that you may have discussed about narcotics and i wanted to catch up on that while your memory was fresh and what you had said in case they didn't catch that one do you remember what you said there at the end of that conversation yes yeah yeah so what i what i, what I said was uh, the challenges with the pre-operative opioids is i don't think there is any rise of surgical complication with opioids at least in my practice and even in the literature but I think there is no doubt that patients who are on opioids for a longer period of time before the surgery and definitely in higher dose will absolutely need opioids for a long time. So you would not be able to say no to them after surgery. So it's better to have a good plan that how long are they going to continue to prescribe them and if they're going to need, there are chances that they might need it long term. So maybe have one of your colleagues who specializes in those kind of like see the patient before surgery. And I think that's the interesting thing. It's important to talk to them beforehand. Otherwise, you know, we all know that how hard it is to prescribe narcotics. So, you know, uh, so we all don't want to be in that situation. So I think it's something to have a discussion about with the patient. And I talk to a lot of these patients and they're generally very understanding and uh, will happily 
do what you reckon. Um, and I think this counseling part is more important. I don't think it affects what you're going to do in surgery, but I think uh, it will make surgeon's life easier in the post-operative period if you if you try your best to bring them down. And if not, which is not possible sometimes, have a plan uh, on who is going to prescribe and, and how long. I agree. I do the same thing with my patient cohort. Uh, I usually have a conversation with their pain management physician, or at least there's a letter that I draft that's just a standard letter that I send to the pain management docs discussing um, the who will be the person that prescribes the medication postoperatively, such as two weeks, three weeks, six weeks. And as long as we have that discourse um, or discussion, uh, then the uh, then the postoperative management is much more clean, if you want to use that word, or or noted and the and the expectation is met beforehand and afterwards much easier. Absolutely. Dr. Keslowal, uh, thank you again for the educational event for our viewers and listeners. Uh, I encourage everyone to check out the article in our latest spine line. It is titled Preoperative Optimization in Spine Surgery, a review by Dr. Keslowal and Dr. Patel. Um, and until next time, stay spine healthy, everyone.